Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, the book of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. We are in the midst of several miracle stories of Jesus. And the first involved cleansing a man who had Surat. The second was healing a house slave of his infirmities at the request of a Roman army officer without Christ even being present with that sick person. The third was healing Peter's mother-in-law. The fourth we'll continue to discuss today, which is Christ compelling the storm and the sea to quiet. And the fifth will be about demon possession. Now before we get there, I must say something. These miracles did not and do not, in general, change the minds of staunch non-believers. Among the Jews of the early first century, healings occurred and they were expected when a Sadek, a holy man, came along as rare as it was. So Yeshua's miracles didn't change many, if any, minds and cause His Jewish countrymen to accept Him as their divine Messiah. Now, when we have our eyes and ears closed and we carry around hearts of stone, no amount of miracles and wonders is going to turn us to God. This is why when we read about the end of days in Revelation with all the amazing and terrifying signs and the chaos and the cataclysms, happenings foretold in the Bible that can be nothing else but divinely caused, there is no accompanying worldwide revival. We aren't rewarded as we read about the global destruction being told by being told that millions and millions of non-believers are going to turn to God as a result. I'd like to believe that, but that's not what we're told. Rather, the majority is going to shake their fists towards heaven and curse Him. See, as it turns out, the purpose of these divine signs and miracles was and will be just as Matthew says in chapter 8, verse 17 concerning Yeshua's wondrous deeds. He says, this was done in order to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Yeshua, Isaiah. Yeshua's miracles of healing and cleansing were done because the Father keeps His promises. The proof of it is the relative few over the centuries who have accepted Yeshua as God's Son as compared to the countless billions of earthlings that have come and gone into the darkness over the centuries, despite His display of awesome miracles. His undeniable resurrection and the detailed fulfillment of many ancient prophecies. I mean, let me ask you a question. 
Was it Christ's miracles that convinced you to trust in Him? It certainly wasn't for me. It was that God did a work in me while I was completely unaware, preparing me and then telling me the truth. Those signs and miracles that we read about in the Bible certainly are faith-affirming, but they are not what we have faith in, nor are they what leads us to faith. These were done because God is faithful to His Word, even when His people aren't. Nothing's changed. And as we read a little more about this sudden storm on the Sea of Galilee, we're going to find that Jesus' actions and words that immediately subdued that storm are not what convinced His disciples that He was far more than a miracle worker. Rather, it simply jarred them. It caused them to be astonished, affirming in them that they had hitched their wagons to an incomparable master. So let's reread a first, the, the first few verses, uh, rather, a few verses in Matthew chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start reading at verse 23. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1233. That's 1233. <clears throat> he boarded the boat, and his Tamadim, that's his disciples, followed. Then, without warning, a furious storm arose on the lake, so that waves were sweeping over the boat. But Yeshua was sleeping. So they came and they roused him, saying, Sir, help, we're about to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? So little trust you have. Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and there was a dead calm. The men were astounded. They asked, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And when Yeshua arrived on the other side of the lake in the Gadarenes territory, there came out of the burial caves two men controlled by demons, so violent, no one dared travel on that road. And they screamed, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged him, If you're going to drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, he told them. So they came out and went into the pigs whereupon the entire herd rushed down the hillside into the lake and drowned. The swineherds fled, went off to the town, and told the whole story, including what had happened to the demonized men. And at this, the whole town came out to meet Yeshua. And when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their district. <clears throat> We left off last week with the knowledge that as the storm that suddenly erupted on the Sea of Galilee and it began tossing that small fishing vessel that he and his disciples were in, Christ was asleep as the others in the boat with him were afraid and they were in panic mode. 
And while we could probably read in some highly spiritual elements and make good allegorical use of the fact that Yeshua was asleep in the tempest, I'm not sure that that's Matthew's intent. When we go back to verses 16 through 22, we find that Yeshua had spent the entire day healing and dealing with large crowds of people pressing in all about him. He was a human being and he was subject to getting tired just as the rest of us. I can't escape the obvious that one of the reasons he got into the boat was as a practical means to escape the demands of this of the endless crowds. Secondly, because he was mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausted. The book of Mark contains the same story, but it adds it from a adds a little bit different perspective to it. In Mark 4, 35 to 41, we read, That day when evening had come, Yeshua said to them, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him just as he was in the boat, and there were other boats with him. A furious windstorm arose, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was close to being swamped. But he was in the stern on a cushion, asleep. They woke him and said to him, Rabbi, doesn't it matter to you that we're all about to be killed? He awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind subdued and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you no trust, even now? But they were terrified, and they asked each other, Who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? So, Yeshua laid down in that cramped little boat on top of a cushion and immediately fell off to sleep. And as the waves grew and the boat began to be tossed around. It was not sufficient in itself to awaken him, but these panicking disciples, probably a little bit reluctantly, roused him. I mean, did they awaken him thinking he was going to calm the storm? Nothing we've read would indicate that they, they thought he had such kinds of powers. Rather, he was their master. He was their leader. It was only natural that as their situation appeared to be growing more and more dire, he certainly had to be made aware of it. And yet, it is too obvious a matter to bypass that Christ's disciples were devoted to him, such that they followed him, they obeyed him in whatever capacity, whatever situation. So when things got out of control, they quickly turned to him, not knowing what else to do. Yet devotion and trust are two different things. It was typical for disciples to be devoted and loyal to their master. But trusting in them to the point of releasing their cares to him, even discounting the outcome of their own lives, now that was another matter. Therefore, Yeshua awakens. And when he does, and he sees the situation, he chastises his disciples. He tells them they have no trust in him. Now, Mark adds two words to Christ's chastisement that do not appear in either Matthew's or Luke's 
version. Even now. Even now. Even now implies that the things that he taught his disciples and the miracles he had performed in their presence ought to have elicited more of their trust. But it hadn't. Christ was none too happy about that. See, we should always notice the frankness of the Gospel accounts concerning the twelve disciples. Nothing is papered over. These men are ordinary. They have their weaknesses, their frailties, and their rather small level of faith at this moment. At least it's small in Christ's eyes, and that's just among their human flaws. This takes us back to the beginning of our lesson today. As much as one might reason and expect that it should, it would not be his astounding miracles, even ordering the storm to abate, that reveals Yeshua as the Messiah, or that he is God incarnate and thus bring about a complete trust in him. It would be two things that makes those hand picked Jewish disciples true believers the Spirit of God preparing them which is what we are witnessing in progress, and then Yeshua telling them the truth about who He is. This hasn't happened yet in Matthew, and of course them accepting it. Now I doubt that any of the Jewish Sadic miracle workers that suddenly appeared in the years before Yeshua calmed the waves and stopped storms. There's no record of it anyway. So, this was an aspect of Christ that the disciples had never seen before, probably never imagined it. No doubt the image of Jonah had to have been conjured up in their minds as later they thought about what they had experienced, although the circumstances were not identical. We're left to understand in every gospel version of this event that clearly the disciples had no explanation for Christ's power and command over nature. Well, quickly the narrative now turns to what happened immediately after the incident of the storm. The boat arrives on the other side of the lake in the territory of, it is said, the Gadarenes. Now there's a bit of a scholarly disagreement over just who these people might have been. Some suggesting they were the Gerasenes and not the Gadarenes. There is a problem with either of those choices. The former were residents of a city located 30 miles from the lake. The latter was associated with a city that was closer to the lake, but still six miles away. Therefore, some scholars think that it was neither. Instead, it was the people of Gergesa, because indeed that was a lakeside village. The other disagreement is whether or not these people were Jews, or better, were Israelites. See, there is nothing historically recorded that seems to be able to clear this matter up. 
Names of people and places change over the centuries with alarming regularity, so we can only speculate. And, and I choose not to speculate about the name of the people because their exact name is not the point of the story. I do agree that whether or not they were Israelites matters significantly. But again, we can't be certain. Now, Samaria, for instance, a region on the west bank of the Jordan, was a mixed population of Gentiles, Jews, Jews married to Gentiles, and even some number of other non-Jewish Israelites that had long ago married Gentiles but remained in the area. So it was quite a mixed crowd there. So it's not impossible the territory that Jesus landed in was similarly populated, especially because it was on the east side of the Jordan River outside of the Holy Land. Even so, the involvement of pigs in the story of demon possession tells me that Gentiles were present. Because the idea of Jews or even leftover Israelites raising herds of pigs is just too far-fetched. Thus we begin with two unnamed men of unnamed origin that come out of some burial caves where they were living in order to confront Yeshua. Now these men were controlled by, they were possessed by demons. And they were so fearsome, so unhinged, that a road that was traveling by that, that traveled by their area was avoided by people. They were just too scared to go there. Now let's talk about the mere concept of demon possession. Because within the church, a, the subject is, is controversial, and it is shunned by many who believe that such a thing doesn't really exist. Now, like so many other subjects in the Bible, the opening of the Red Sea, even Jesus rising from the dead, demon possession is immediately latched onto, declared as suspect, and dismissed by scientists, anthropologists, and psychiatrists. Rather, they say that these supposed demon-possessed people were actually mental patients. Because long before the medical field advanced to its present stage, the only explanation that the ancients had for their bizarre behavior of some of these people was demon possession. Therefore, the same people depicted on our story then could have been treated with psychiatry and medication had it been available. And yet I know reliable people who have personally dealt with demon possession. And although I've witnessed only one case of it all my life, at least that I was aware of, there's not a doubt in my mind that it is quite real and still relevant in our era. So while I believe that no doubt mental illness existed among some in Christ's day, that doesn't preclude the existence also of demon possession in others. They're not mutually exclusive. So our story in Matthew that also appears in Mark 5 and Luke 8 is not about the mentally ill, it's about the demon-possessed. 
Now, there are slight differences in this story among the three synoptic Gospels, such as there being one possessed person in two of the accounts and two persons in Matthew's account. The number of possessed plays no role in the event. The issue is that they are possessed by demons, unclean spirits, and it has caused them to be violent and uncontrollable. Now, how they got that way in the first place is beyond the scope of the story. Now, the mention of the possessed men living in a burial cave is important in Matthew's story because it speaks to them wallowing in a ritually unclean state in every imaginable way. A burial cave is an inherently unclean place because a dead body's in there. There is little more ritually impure thing in the Jewish religion than a corpse and death. Yet these men were, with little doubt, Gentiles, not Jews. Living in a cave that was not also used for burial wasn't unusual. And for pagans, living in burial caves was in some cases not seen as necessarily gross or wrong, especially for cultures where their religion involved ancestor worship. Caves to this day form good housing in some cultures, as it did in Yeshua's day, even in Granada, Spain. There are still people who have turned caves into housing. So once the men became demon-possessed and made unclean, then it could do them no more harm to live in a burial cave. Besides, who's to say that they even saw themselves as unclean in God's eyes? See, this is one of the biggest dangers in Gentile Christianity by disavowing the Torah of Moses, and so knowing nothing about it. You know, just because a Christian doesn't know he or she is unclean or is breaking God's commandments doesn't mean in God's eyes they aren't. Ignorance of God's laws and one and of one's own spiritual status, that doesn't excuse anything. See, what's fascinating is that these demon-possessed men came out of their caves and they screamed at Christ, not disrespectfully, out of fear, out of fear. See, they wanted to know something very interesting. They wanted to know why He was here. Why are you here at this time and not, they say, at the appointed time? Hmm. Which they thought would be a later date, obviously. Not now. They called him Son of God. They wondered if he was here to torture them sooner than was scheduled. So here we see these demons know the real identity of Yeshua, even though the twelve disciples didn't. See, the demons understand He's divine. They know there's an appointed time. An appointed time. 
for them to be dealt with and tormented, and that the timing of that coincides with Jesus being present on earth. They know that much. These demons know a lot about Christ and their own destiny, but they don't know everything. I'm going to pause here to address something important. Clearly, the New Testament identifies that there are two latter days or end times. Prefer latter days in this case. If you want a more extensive understanding of this, go to my study of the book of Daniel. But the short version is this. The first latter days was the era leading up to and including the first coming of Christ. The second latter days will be the era leading up to and including the second coming of Christ. We may well even be living in that era. The people of Christ's time knew only of that first latter days. They had no expectation of a second. So, when Yeshua spoke about the Kingdom of God and of certain things that were going to happen at the end, the Jews that heard Him thought He was speaking about this happening nearly immediately. For Jews, the appearance of the Messiah was concretely associated with the arrival of the end times. And for them, the judgment of the demons was also directly tied to the end times. This is why we see Peter, Paul, and several other New Testament believers so passionate about getting the message of salvation out. They felt a pressing urgency because they totally believed that the end was imminent, would happen in their lifetimes, because the Messiah had come. For them, promise and theory became fact and reality. Thus, when I read the story of these demoniacs who are in terror and surprised at Jesus' appearance, it tells me that they too know nothing of a second latter days and of two appearances of Christ on earth. They only know of one, but guess what? It's later. It's not now. So they were confused. These demons were confused. I mean, what they did seem to know is that at a divinely preset time, coincidental again with the appearance of the Son of God, the condition of their existence as evil, unclean beings would be forever changed. Torment and darkness is their eternal future. However, that time was not yet. And just like human beings do, they wanted every last second of existence they could have. Rather than Yeshua judging them and sentencing them to torment, which is what they fear is about to happen, had a schedule, but they were very relieved when it didn't. The demons pled with him that they just be relocated to another and different unclean place as a kind of interim or 
partial judgment, inside pigs. And yet, from a Torah perspective, pigs are not inherently unclean animals. Rather, they're only prohibited from being used as food. Even so, in Christ's day, pigs were by that time, by Jewish tradition, considered so inherently unclean that they're unclean even to touch. Now remember, who is writing this gospel? And who's writing it to? Matthew is a learned, believing Jew, and his gospel is being written to Jews. So there's this huge hint in Christ's response to the demons that the day of judgment, the end of days, isn't here yet, even though he's appeared. But it will come some unknown time later, and as will the judgment, and that judgment will also include the sphere of spiritual evil. Well, upon receiving permission to leave those men's bodies and move into pigs, the now demon-possessed herd rushes towards the lake and it drowns. Now, by no means does this intend the demons have drowned. See, one must ask, why this rush towards the water and mass suicide? What does it mean? I mean, is it just the demon's desire to harm and kill pigs? Can demons actually inhabit the body of animals and control them? I mean, the suggestion of it is certainly present in this narrative. Now, I don't have all the answers to this dilemma, but this much is certain, in God's economy, water is a ritually purifying element for land creatures. Even inanimate pots having ritually impure contents in them, even they can be cleansed of their impurity by being immersed in water. So since the matter of ritual impurity is such a focus in this story of demon possession, then surely the pigs running headlong into water must signal a real danger to these unclean demons. In any case, pigs die. So in another sense, the demons are right back into an unclean place, right where they belong. In other words, this story is built upon an irony, perhaps a paradox. Christ allows the unclean spirits to go into the unclean pigs that then run to a source of cleanness, water, only to drown and then have the unclean spirits right back in the unclean corpses of the pigs. Due to their aversion to both Gentiles and pigs, I suspect the Jews reading this would have found this story to be pretty comical. Now, interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell us what happened to the men that had been possessed by these demons, but now they were freed. No doubt it is because for him, they're not the issue in this story. The issue is a display of Christ's command over the spirit world, including the demonic spirit world. 
as well as the demons fully understanding Yeshua's identity and their ultimate destiny of judgment that is tied to His presence. Likely it was also because these men were Gentiles, making them of little interest to Jews, except that it puts Gentiles in the unfavorable light that Jews generally viewed them. Even so, Mark does tell us that as Christ gets ready to to board the boat and to depart, the now exercised men ask Him if they can come with Him. He says, no. They need to go back to their own people, Gentiles, and tell them how merciful the Lord has been to them. Yeshua is not referring to Himself when He says, the Lord. He's referring to His Father. I suspect that in the original Hebrew that Matthew penned his Gospel, the word was not the Greek kurios, which is Lord, but rather was Yehovah, God's name, because that fits the context of the story so much better. Well, the two men who had tended the now dead pigs, about 2,000 of them, according to Mark, pretty sizable, valuable bunch of animals, they go running back into their town to tell everybody what happened. The townspeople come out. They are upset. They insist that Christ leaves, no doubt, because pigs represented a a big part of their local economy. They didn't want to risk losing their own herds to this mysterious Jewish man's abilities. Now, before we leave chapter 8, I want to address something that is perhaps of interest only to me. (laughs) Why did Jesus go to these particular people on the west side of the lake? I mean, did He initially choose this place, knowing beforehand that He was to go there to have this confrontation with demons? I mean, we have no clue, except to perhaps think about it logically. Now, in Capernaum, Jesus boarded a a small fishing boat to get out into the lake to escape the crowds. Now, he was exhausted from a very long day. He fell asleep in the boat. In the meantime, a storm blew up. He was awakened. He spoke to the storm and it quieted down. But by now, the boat had been pushed along, <laughs> no longer controlled by its rudder, but rather only by the direction of the fierce winds and the waves. And it pushed them to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was by God's providence that they landed where they did, not by intention. Folks, we can use this adventure as an analogy and as a story of encouragement. I know for a fact that many of us, many of us, have been blown at times rudderless on the winds and waves of life to the place we are today. Some of that journey may have been, maybe it still is, uncomfortable, if not terrifying. If we belong to the Lord, however, then unbeknown to us and according to His providence, 
It was He who controlled those winds and waves of our life to land us right where we belong, right where He wants us. And now that we're here, our duty is to embrace the mission and purpose that we never set sail for and to thank Him for it. Let's move on to chapter 9. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read the entire chapter. We'll be on page 1233. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 1233. Chapter 9. So he stepped into a boat, he crossed the lake again, and came to his own town. And some people brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mattress. When Yeshua saw their trust, he said to the paralyzed man, Courage, sons, your sins are forgiven. On seeing this, some of the Torah teachers said among themselves, This man's blaspheming. Yeshua, knowing what they were thinking, said, Why are you entertaining evil thoughts in your hearts? Tell me, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. But look, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, pick up your mattress, and go home. And the man got up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. And they said a barachah, said a blessing to God, the giver of such authority to human beings. And as Yeshua passed on from there, he spotted a tax collector named Matthew, Matthew, sitting in his collection booth, and he said to him, Follow me! And he got up and followed him. And while Yeshua was sitting in the house eating, many tax collectors and sinners came and joined him and his Talmudim, his disciples, at the meal. And when the Parshim, Pharisees, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Yeshua heard the question, and he answered, The ones who need a doctor aren't the healthy, but the sick. Now as for you, go and learn what this means. I want compassion rather than animal sacrifices. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Next, Yochanan's, that's John, we're talking about John the Baptist's disciples came to him and asked, Why is it that we and the Pharisees fast frequently, but your disciples don't fast at all? And Yeshua said to them, Can wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. No one patches an old coat with a piece of unshrunk cloth, because the patch tears away from the coat and leaves a worse hole. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins. If they do, the skins burst, the wine spills, and the wineskins are ruined. No, they pour new wine into freshly prepared wineskins, and in this way both are preserved. And while he was talking, an official came in and kneeled down in front of him and said, My daughter has just died, but if you come and lay your hand on her, she will live. Yeshua with his Talmudim got up and followed him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for twelve years approached him from behind and touched the tzitzit on his robe. For she said to herself, If I can only touch his robe, I'll be healed. And Yeshua turned and saw her and said, Courage, daughter, your trust has healed you and she was instantly healed. 
When Yeshua arrived at the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in an uproar, He said, Everybody out! This girl isn't dead, she's only sleeping. And they jeered at Him. But after the people had been put outside, He entered and took hold of the girl's hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all the region. As Yeshua went on from there, two blind men began following Him, shouting, Son of David! Take pity on us! And when He entered the house, the blind men came up. And Yeshua said to them, Do you believe that I have the power to do this? And they replied, Yes, sir. Then He touched their eyes and said, Let it happen to you according to your trust. And their sight was restored. Yeshua warned them severely, See that no one knows about this, but instead they went away and talked about Him throughout the district. As they were going, a man controlled by a demon unable to speak was brought to Yeshua. And after the demon was expelled, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, they said. But the Pharisees said, It's through the ruler of the demons that he expels demons. Yeshua went about all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and weakness. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harried and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then He said to His disciples, The harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in His harvest. We have in chapter 9 another series of miracles performed by Christ, the addition of a new disciple, and some God principles are renewed. Now we're told that Yeshua and His own disciples returned to the other side of the lake to what Matthew calls His town. No doubt it was Capernaum where they were originally set out from. Now there was a paralyzed man that was brought to Yeshua in hopes of him being healed. The Gospel of Mark adds some important information to the story. Starting at Mark 2.1, after a while, Yeshua referred to Kafar Nahum, that's Capernaum, and the word spread that he was back. And so many people gathered around the house that there was no longer any room, not even in the front door. And while he was preaching the message to them, four men came to him carrying a paralyzed man. They could not get near Yeshua because of the crowd, so they stripped the roof over the place where he was, made an opening, and lowered the stretcher with the paralytic lying on it. Seeing their trust, Yeshua said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now perhaps the main addition from Mark has to do with how this paralyzed man was brought to Jesus. Four men who must have cared deeply for Him went so far as to cut an area through the roof of the house where Yeshua was, and then lowered this man down. Now we're told that they did this. Why? Because the house was so crowded. Now we don't know whose house he was in. Perhaps it was Peter's. But one can only imagine the crowds that anxiously waited for this miracle healer to return, with the hope that somehow they might get near enough to get Yeshua's attention and have their afflictions cured. You know, many years ago, 
I had a, I heard a pastor speak about this in a message that he entitled The Stretcher Bearers. It made such an impact on me. I want to share just a little bit of it with you. In this story, we have a very ill man that could not help himself because he was unable to move. He's paralyzed. However, we have four men who cared enough, no doubt close family, friends, maybe family, and they each took a corner of a stretcher and they did what had to be done. Now, to be a stretcher bearer, one has to have the health and the strength to do it. It means that a stretch, as a stretcher bearer, your health, probably your life, is in some kind of good order. Now, not everyone wants to bother to be a stretcher bearer. But Christ has taught us that we all should be. That's how we love our neighbor. An old adage is, it's easier to give than to receive. So true. But it's also easier to carry the corner of a stretcher than to be the one lying on it. As a stretcher bearer, see, we still have some control. As the passenger, life has become somewhat out of control. Nobody wants to be that person on the stretcher because it means some tragedy, accident, illness, something terrible has unfolded upon us. Now, you know, especially men are wired to be stretcher bearers, but we're not wired to be on that stretcher, are we, men? It hurts our pride, hurts our ego makes us feel impotent. So the real story isn't about the bearers of the stretcher, it's about the man that's on it. And Matthew being Matthew, he focuses not on the carriers, he doesn't even mention them, just only the victim. Now see, the harsh reality is that while most believers don't mind being a stretcher bearer, it is nearly devastating to have to give up our independence and become the one who needs to be carried. The even harsher reality is that at some point, probably all of us are going to find ourselves on that stretcher. Will we have those around us who want to pick up a corner and lift us up? How will we react to this? Might we be grateful to be carried? Or will we be in denial and be bitter about it? Will we shake our fist at God angry because we've been such faithful stretcher bearers for others, we think we don't deserve now to be the one that needs the help? Or will we bend to God's will and allow ourselves to grow in faith as a result? See, the thing I've learned that has been the most valuable to me, having been both the carried 
and the carrier is this. As the one on the stretcher, we should never take away the blessing of the of the bearers by us being bitter, ungrateful, angry, or maybe even ashamed. We should never try to shoo them away. Never try to declare we don't need their help. When in fact, everyone can see that we do. If we're the Lord's, and if we're the ones in need of being carried, then God has placed us there for a reason. You know, maybe it's because one or all of those carrying our stretcher needs a blessing. Maybe that's what it's about. Often it's for us to learn humility. I mean, there is a little more humbling, again, especially to a male, of having to be carried. So whoever this paralyzed man was that was being carried to Jesus, even let down through a ceiling, he was not in the happiest of positions. As a paralytic in the first century, he was in control of nothing. His future was bleak. In his humbled state, this afflicted man received from Yeshua exactly what he needed to and could hear, forgiveness from the sin that he was full of. And yet, was atonement? Was atonement what this man or his four friends were looking to Christ for? No, they were looking to Him for healing. So now after our speaking to the principle of the stretcher-bearer, we find this challenging matter of sin being coupled to infirmity, to sickness. You know, biblically, what is this connection between sin and illness? Yeshua didn't say to this man, Arise and walk. He didn't say that to the paralyzed man. He didn't say, Be healed. What did he say? He said, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. It is interesting that in only one other place in the New Testament do we find Yeshua directly forgiving the sins of a particular person. In Luke 7, we read this, Luke 7, 44-48. Then turning to the woman, he said to Shimon, that's Simon Peter, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but from the time I arrived, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but this woman poured, poured uh, perfume on my feet. Because of this, I tell you that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, because she loved much. But someone who has been forgiven only a little, loves only a little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now in the case of the paralyzed man, are we to conclude that it was sin that caused this man's condition? And if this was the case, then what Jesus did was to address the underlying cause of this man's disability, sin, 
as opposed to the disability itself. Now, no doubt in that era, sin and physical affliction were connected. There was, there, there was another important incident whereby Yeshua connected sin and sickness. In uh, John, Gospel of John 5, 5 uh, through 14, one man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Yeshua, seeing this man and knowing that he had been there for a long time, said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is disturbed. And while I'm trying to get there, someone goes in ahead of me. And Yeshua said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was Shabbat. So the Judeans said to the man who had been healed, It's Shabbat. It's against Torah for you to carry your mat. <laughs> but he answered them, The man who healed me, he's the one who told me, Pick up your mat and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who told you to pick it up and walk? But the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, because Yeshua had slipped away into the crowd. Afterwards, Yeshua found him in the temple court and said to him, See, you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. See, to this point it certainly sounds like Yeshua is instructing that sin causes infirmities and sickness. And we have many people in denominations that take hold of this and make it a doctrine that if one is sick or disabled, then it was because of some sin or another that this person committed, so until they confess that sin and are forgiven, they have no hope of being healed. Unfortunately, this also labels that person's, person as an especially egregious sinner, and believers tend to accuse that person of causing their own illness. Now, despite what Christ has said thus far about sin and sickness, we also read this in John, in John 9.1. As Yeshua passed along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, to cause him to be born blind? And Yeshua answered, His blindness is due neither to his sin nor to that of his parents. It happened so that God's power might be seen at work in him. See, the early church fathers had different takes on sin and sickness, with Hilary of Poitiers in the 4th century probably coming closest to the middle ground. In his commentary on Matthew 9 and the man on the stretcher, he says this, The paralytic is a descendant of the original man, Adam. In one person, Christ, all of the sins of Adam are forgiven. We do not believe the paralytic committed any sin that resulted in his illness, especially since the Lord said elsewhere that blindness from birth had not been contracted from someone's sin or that of his parents. So this is our dilemma. Is sin and sickness directly connected? Or is there no connection? Or is there a connection sometimes? Or are we to look at it more like Hillary, in that what causes illness is the sin nature 
that we all inherit from Adam, as opposed to sins of breaking the laws of Moses. So then, why do staunch, faithful believers get sick? In the end, I can't provide a simple answer. Assuming that Christ was not merely mouthing words in order to play into traditions and customs of His Jewish culture, then it's undeniable that He did indeed draw a link, a direct link, between sin and sickness. Even so, it seems to be on an almost case-by-case basis, such that only God knows when a person is ill due to sin and when he or she is not. Perhaps the only thing that we can do, maybe this is the lesson from it all, is to not suppose that we are in a position to make that judgment about an ill person. Rather, us not knowing the source of their infirmity, we should pray for them, asking both for forgiveness of sins and for their healing. This seems to be actually what James, brother of Jesus, is saying at the end of his letter. Listen to James 5.13-16. Is someone among you in trouble? He should pray. Is someone feeling good? Then he should sing songs of praise. Is someone among you ill? He should call for the elders of the congregation. They will pray for him and rub olive oil on him in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered with trust will heal the one who is ill. The Lord will restore his health. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, openly acknowledge your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We'll continue with Matthew chapter 9 next week.